Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. I am so excited for this week. I mean, I'm excited for every week. This week we nerded out on some science research, some discussions with a researcher and a professor, which was incredible. I mean, I I was so elated the whole time I was having this conversation and just a mutual level of passion and, and desire to want to understand the world and definitely from two different lenses, which is really beautiful. I love looking at the crossover of the workplace with how we show up because there really is no such thing as work-life balance or work and life being separate things. They are the same thing. There's just life and everything we put in it. And I think we often believe that our romantic relationship challenges will be challenges that are just unique to romantic relationships, but they are often just a magnifying glass to the things we struggle with. And so when we look at the more minute triggers in the workplace or the fact that we have, we have more energetic, we spend more energy suppressing emotional responses in the workplace than we do at home because we sort of expect our partner to tolerate more from us in some sense or to deal with more of us or we take for granted a lot of the time and we end up bringing some of our worst parts of ourselves to our romantic relationship because we're exhausted from pretending to be different at work, from holding on to emotional responses at work. And this is a fascinating thing to start to explore and look at and Just the dynamics uh, of human behavior within all aspects of life, you know, and this is when we start to tie these things together, we see that our struggles are not (laughs) unique to one area. And I'm excited for you to hear this podcast episode with uh, Payal Sharma. I wanted to take a quick break in this episode to talk to you about the greatest struggle that people have in dating, and that is asking the right questions. And not just the right questions, but asking hard questions, questions that determine if someone wants what you want, what you are, what your relationship status is, that that deepen vulnerability and intimacy. And ultimately, asking the right questions allows you to get to know someone on a deeper level, gets to know their values, get to know whether they're a good fit for you. Now, I recognize that When I get feedback on asking questions, people say, that's too hard to ask, or it's too soon to ask that, or whatever the excuse or thought or feeling or fear might be. And so I thought, shit, let me ask the hard questions. And that's why I created Create the Love Cards. Create the Love Cards is created with such intention for you to deepen your conversations on dating. And because of that, the deck, when you open it up, it fits two smartphones. So you can put your phone inside the box as you take the cards out so you can both be present. Now, if someone doesn't want to play, I'm like, swipe left. That's a red flag. Like, who doesn't want to play a game? Second, I've got it in four sections. So we've got foreplay, diving deeper, too much information, because would it be a deck from me if it didn't have TMI, and building chemistry. So there's four sections for you to explore the landscapes of one another and see if you're a good fit. If you want to have deeper conversations, if you want to take this deck of cards on your dates or on your date night, or you think this would be a good gift for a couple, then go to createthelove.com slash cards. I put them at a really accessible price of 30 bucks, and I can't wait for you to check them out. They've received rave reviews. People are loving them. I have actually one friend who took them out on its second date with someone that she was hitting it off with, 
And after she got the answers to the questions that the deck provided, she realized that this person was not a good fit and swiped left and now is in a relationship with someone she loves. So that's what dating is about, is it's about filtering. And also my intention is to support you along that journey to not just finding the person that you want, but if you're with them, asking the questions that help create and deepen intimacy. So go to createthelove.com slash cards and grab a set now. Without further ado, let's rock this. Enjoy. And actually, before I go, wherever you are listening to this, please subscribe to it. Give it a five-star review and a written review so you can get new episodes as they come up. And if you really love this episode, please share it. I almost forgot that, but I need your guys' support in exchange for the tremendous amount of effort that I put into this podcast. I would be eternally grateful. Thanks so much and have the most wonderful time enjoying this conversation that I enjoyed so, so much. Excited this week to change things up a little bit. And what I mean by that is normally we talk about relationships in the context of more romantic focused. And although I'm sure we will go there, we're talking about it outside of that context. And I'm really excited to have Payal Sharma here for the podcast today. So welcome. Thank you, Mark. I'm excited to talk and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, like who knows what's about to unfold. But I know before we hit record, we hit about every subject on the planet. So we might as well might as well hit record and let's get this, this get this going. Sounds good. So tell people a little bit about yourself, your background and and, and you know why why we should listen to you because we should listen to you. I've already in the first 30 minutes of getting to know you, I'm like, brain is exploding. <laughs> I get that a lot. Um, so my name's Payal Sharma. I'm an organizational psychologist. Um, my day job is a professor of management at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas in the business school. I've been a professor for about eight years and power and stress are my jams. Uh, really, my philosophy in life is to try to help people understand where they have agency, um, choice, and control when they're facing hardships in their work settings. So I study topics like trauma and workplace mistreatment. I also study power dynamics between leaders and what makes leaders more or less comfortable to share power with their employees. In the context of sharing power with their employees, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So one of my central research interests is on empowering leadership and those are behaviors that include if I try to motivate you at your highest potential, I might involve you in decisions. I might allow you to set your own goals and think about your performance on your own. And most of the empowering leadership research is embedded in the assumption that leaders want to lend power to others around them. And so for me, I like to break from frames and crack eggs in my scholarship. And so I've started to question whether all leaders want to share power and are they comfortable with what happens when you do that? So in the context of a leader who has the inability to give away power or mm-hmm. uh, has some sense of loss, what do you notice as a differentiation between the people who can and the people who can't? Yep. So empirically, we don't have a lot of data on this, but management scholars have had some dialogue around the reasons and the differences between leaders who can and cannot lend power. One reason that leaders are less likely to lend power is because they feel a sense of threat to their own authority, their leadership identity in the organization. If I involve you in my decision-making, will you become a star and maybe you'll replace me, right? That's a realistic concern for some leaders. We also know that through dialogue, again, from management scholars and some data on this particular topic, the higher your need for power is, 
the more reactive you're going to be to power dynamics in your organization. And there's two types of need for power. One is socialized, where you're willing to use your power and be focused on the needs for others. And then personalized power, of course, is when you're all about yourself. And so it seems to be that if you're more of the latter, it's not going to be that you're going to react when your employees either come to you and want to have more autonomy or discretion in their work. Um, but for the latter, there's probably going to be a button pushed around maybe sense of worth or perhaps, you know, your attachment to your job or your role. And so I always tell people my philosophy is I think leaders need to look at their own wounds, because if you put a leader in an organization that has trauma and you marry that to power, which includes resources and having control over other people, that's a pretty uncomfortable combination. And I know there are people out there who might work for leaders who don't handle their wounds and power together very well. Yeah, depending where you live in the world, you might experience a leader may or may not be similar to or not similar to that possibility. I mean, I think of that in the context of you have this, because I don't think anyone has ever really thought about that you take someone who's traumatized and give them a position of power who's never actually looked at their shit. So the shadow stuff is, because of course, if we looked at their romantic relationships, they're probably in the same power dynamic, you know, probably male, I'm guessing in your, in your research, was there a difference between the gender based, um, like in terms of character outcomes? It's such a great question. And unfortunately, the research hasn't gone there yet. So I'm hoping that as we start to collect more data in the future, right now our ideas are more conceptual. We could look at that particular difference and see, you know, what comes of the data. I'm always struck that, you know, when we think about relationships in the work setting, organizations are hierarchies, right? So there's always going to be a power differential between a leader and an employee. That's just the natural default of how organizations are set up. But increasingly, I tend to think, and we chatted a little bit about this ahead of the call, I think the relationships that are optimized are those where there's mutual dependence. And I think that's the same for a leader and an employee. It's not that one person should solely depend on the other, but there should be some sharing of the investment that we both have. And to me, that's the healthiest way that leaders can approach relationships. Of course, that can vary if your employees are incompetent or you feel like they're not showing up for you or vice versa. But sometimes I think we need to move the needle in the direction of mutual power dependence instead of always assuming one person has the upper hand. Yeah, that's interesting because you think of that in the context of, okay, well, how can a leader, because inherently in the structure of my own organization, which sounds weird when there's like five people, but in the context of that system, just inherently by being the person who's paying a, a salary or, or paying someone, there's right. a power dynamic, right? Um, that I uh, am conscious of and so try to mitigate in other ways, which, which my thought is, so my employees know about my life. You know, I mean, most of the world knows about my life, so it's not like that's necessarily special, but they know about like the inner workings of what's going on that not, you know, cause there's a line between privacy and transparency. And so sure. they get more of the privacy that to me is important because I know about their lives and there's like a friendship that is built. So when you talked about this mutual dependency, how do you create mutual dependency in an organizational hierarchy when assuming the culture is even open to upper to upward feedback. Yes. Which like a 360 of a manager is a real great idea, but right. how often do people actually use them? 
And some criticisms of 360 programs is that they're not managed appropriately and the messaging around them isn't what it should be. So it puts people on the defense, right? Like you're going to get this feedback. What are you supposed to do with it? Is it going to affect your promotion, your bonus and so forth? For me, relationships around power have to involve a starting point of trust. And so if we think about romantic relationships as well, how do you learn to trust someone? And I had done a podcast with someone you know, Jeremy Goldberg, and we talked about how trust is a dance and a courtship. And what I'd like to tell people is, one, on the first day you meet someone, whether it's romantic or professional, fight that urge to overshare, right? Yeah. Trust comes from time and from that dance and learning about each other and navigating the roles, which might shift, right? Like a leader is not always going to be the expert on every single decision that comes up. And so really learning to kind of lean in and step back and have that balance, I think, has to be the starting point. One of my favorite companies that I think does power dynamics beautifully is Zappos. And what a lot of people don't know is that Zappos has an incredibly thoughtful and well-timed out pipeline before they allow their employees to have autonomy. So one fun fact is that when you go through training at Zappos, which lasts for several weeks, you're actually given the option to take home a package of money and leave Zappos because they're trying to filter people out who aren't the right fit for their culture and the power mm, dynamics they're promoting. And so I think time plays an element in learning about each other. And with trust, you know, how do you trust someone? Well, you have to figure it out. You have to see if you can trust them and see how they respond. And I once heard that the only way to understand someone's response to vulnerability, I don't know if you said this or some other thought leader, is you have to look at patterns, right? You give a little, you see how the person responds, and then you go from there. Yeah. Well, so many people need to be reminded, this happens in the workplace too, that people have to earn the right to your story. You know, like you don't just fucking pour it all out. But I, I think that's often a, a source of low self-worth is my I'm not worthy as I am. So I'm going to present all my deepest shit to you. And if you can't hold it, then it's you, not me, because we haven't learned to hold it ourselves yet. And we don't trust ourselves with it. We haven't found all the all the gold, the wisdom in that pain, because otherwise we wouldn't be handing it to someone else being like, hey, validate that this trauma I experienced is is um, is OK. And. It, I know we mentioned this previously before, but we had a record interruption <laughs> due to my technical <laughs> uh, lack of technical skills. But the the idea that that a real successful corporate culture really has that space where there's psychological safety to be yourself. But that's so rare. That's rare. And I find quite because in the in the desire to create that within my own experience and my own organization is that it feels scary to when I present it, like, hey, no matter what you share with me, you will always be received with love. Mm -hmm. Always, always. I promise you, I give you my word that no matter what your feedback is, I'll hold it. And it's like, eh, I don't know. Like there's a lack of trust in that because their previous experience, maybe with family even too, is yes. that that's not true. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I commend you on doing that because I think it's important work and when you do that, there's a payoff, right? There's going to be a return on the investment. I advise people when you're building relationships, especially in work settings, go slow, right? Like take it at a measured pace and allow each other to build a track record that helps you understand how you can depend on that person, if at all. And allow space for there to be bumps and hiccups because this is a learning experience often that we're in when we're trying to figure out how to how to work together. 
sometimes I feel like we take for granted that everyone around us thinks or feels the same way as we do. We grew up in the same family structures as we did. And you don't choose the family you're born into. And so we have to kind of honor and give space to everyone on their journey and where they're at and hopefully try to meet, I think, in the middle. Which to think like in a relationship that makes such logical sense of like, there's space for your story. And I need to know, for example, like, what was your experience in your family with money? And what was the experience of my family with money? And if I come from poverty, and you come from not as much poverty, we're going to have different stories about money. And those two stories are going to have to find a way to come together. But that doesn't make mine more valid, or your less valid or anything. And that's the same in the workplaces you take let's say an organization of 500 people, Mm -hmm. you have 500 stories. You have 500 people who probably like 457 have never read a book about, you know, like from Eckhart Tolle or like, I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, but I have swear I've read a couple of his books. But the the point being that they haven't necessarily uh, embarked on personal growth and self-awareness. And then we're expected to just function in a high-functioning, um, very complex system and not experience and have leaders who've never dealt with their trauma being manipulative. Agreed. I'll give you a corollary. So I teach a class on power and politics and organizations. And one of the themes right away that we start with is this idea of proactivity. We want employees in general to use their voice and take charge and sell issues and try to come up with new ways of working that's the essence of most business schools is we try to encourage that creative thinking and, you know, out of box approaches. But I often tell my students, just because you have a good idea, doesn't mean you stand on the rooftop of your organization and scream it out and expect everyone to embrace it and rally around you. Like this becomes a power story. You have to understand how to strategically build allies and understand the right place and the right time to share ideas And so I feel like when you think about doing the work in an organization, you have to understand who you are and what maybe your buttons are. And you also have to understand the needs of those around you. And that's actually how you gain power, because power is about influence and control and creating dependence dynamics. But you can't do that unless you know yourself. And I don't know how you can influence others without knowing yourself first. Not, not from an authentic space. That's for sure. You could, you know, it's kind of like when people read the books, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, the game, how to manipulate women. And there's a book like uh, why men love bitches, you know, and both those books are about creating behaviors that imitate high self-worth, not having high self-worth, but imitate high self-worth so that someone thinks you have it. So then they're more attracted to you, but that still is contrived at the end of the day. You know, when you face rejection or abandonment, the true you is going to come out. You know, the part that hasn't done the work is going to come out. And so I think in the context of the workplace, you're so right. If we haven't built our own relational human awareness, then we won't know where to separate our story from our colleague's story. Like, is this my shit or is this their shit? Because sometimes it's their shit, but sometimes it's mine. And like, are we willing? Can we hold that? That's Although that's a really nice, I mean, I think all organizations can get there. Yes. But man, if your leader can't hold their own stuff, you know, then then what? Have you guys in your research, what's sort of the most shocking thing that you've seen or something that you're like, oh, or gets you going? I like stuff that gets people going. What gets you sort of revved up? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you about a current research project I'm working on that we briefly chatted about that just really 
has lit an intellectual fire in me. So this is sort of a long-winded story. Bear with me. On the first day of my leadership class, I asked my students to come up with a list of behaviors and characteristics of effective leaders. And this is always this dynamic conversation. They get very energized. They work in partners. And we put a list on the board of all the characteristics. And this will include a leader who's empathetic, a leader who's supportive. And the list goes on and on. We then repeat that exercise and I flip the lens and say, what do you think are behaviors and characteristics of effective followers? So this, again, is day one in Mm -hmm. Professor Sharma's undergraduate leadership class. What I then infuse into the conversation is that we have what are called implicit theories of leadership. ILTs and implicit theories of followership, IFTs. These are in the research world, our cognitive schemas, our mental models about how leaders, quote unquote, should be. Once we move away from day one, about two weeks later, I do a session on the intersection of leadership and emotions. And so the way I start the class is I'll have my students watch a video that you're probably familiar with from Brene Brown on the differences between empathy and sympathy. And so as a quick sort of one on, you know, 101, sympathy often has sentences that start with at least. So, oh, I had a miscarriage. Let's say hypothetically someone says that. A sympathetic response would be, at least you can still have babies. It's a great Mm -hmm. video. So after I show this video, I ask my students, what do you want in your leaders? And not surprisingly, if you think back to their ILTs, they want leaders who demonstrate empathy. So I use that as a segue to start talking about what are the costs of being empathetic, right? Like what if leaders have multiple employees who ask of them emotionally? Can that ever drain a leader? I study stress, so I'm interested in burnout. So that's one piece of the conversation. What I then like to do is transition and I show my students research that says men who are empathetic vulnerable and or agreeable, i.e. nice guys, are punished in the work setting. And this really bothers me because, Mark, my question at the end of this discussion is, what am I supposed to tell my male students who maybe naturally gravitate towards those behaviors and characteristics that we, again, want in effective leaders, but men are earning 18% less income when they demonstrate some of these behaviors. Agreeableness, by the way, is part of the big five personality assessment. And your personality, as people might know, is generally determined by the age of five. So if you're an agreeable dude and you show up in your work setting and you're told that you're less competent, that you're less hireable, or that you're more likely to face career derailment, what are we supposed to tell these men? And so this article that came out in Harvard Business Review from Dave Mayer, a Michigan professor, talks about different strategies for organizations and how they can support their men. But my question is, what advice do we give to the men themselves? And not surprisingly, this is research rooted in gender stereotypes, discrimination. Uh, The body of work is called gender backlash. And so for me, I'm really at a place where I'm like, I don't know what I tell my male students, because if I tell them to be empathetic, vulnerable and agreeable, am I setting them up to be penalized? Mm, I have a number of thoughts on this because that is really interesting because, of course, it's what we say we want, especially for men. And I, I really I really believe that that, you know, ultimately men have historically and evolutionarily, uh, at least it's posited emulated the behavior of the men who got the most women, right? Like that's ultimately from an evolutionary perspective, why we would, we want to become like the person who has the power, the money, the, the ladies, the whatever. Yes. And I'm speaking heteronormatively because we're talking about evolution in this sense. And so the, 
what then happens is in if if emotion is not a celebrated is not what these men have but they have power and they lack empathy we're going to want to emulate them so then we're not going to develop those skills or we're going to hide them so they're not integrated they're they're hidden they're connected to shame but it also correlates to to just sort of extend from that Brene Brown's research when I know she talks about it I believe in her talk on shame her TED talk she talks about how when men show emotion that women lose trust in them. And so to sort of like bring this, correlate these things together, I was talking to a woman who lives in New York and we had this really fascinating conversation where she makes like half a million dollars a year and she needed to find a man who made more money than her. And I thought, okay, do you want like an emotionally intelligent, connective, empathetic man? Yes, what kind of men are going to make more money than you? Generally speaking, I'm generalizing and apologies if you make lots of money and you're an empathetic person. And I was like, what careers will they have? She was like, finance probably. And I'm like, right. okay, if we were to do a character trait of men who are in finance, they're probably power driven. They probably don't prioritize family generally. Again, apologize if you feel insulted. The They likely don't place personal life ahead of their achievements. So if you are picking these men that you say that, that will you do that at the cost of empathy, her choices of relational history did support that being true. Wow. Um, then you're still complicit in the system. And so it's interesting to think of how this correlates and overlaps with organizational behaviors where I think like, okay, well, if we, if capitalism and organizations celebrate power and getting to the top at the cost of anything, because a narcissistic person doesn't give a fuck that they stood on someone's head no. and no one, no one will even find out that they stood on that person's head because that person is likely subdued and like quiet and, you know, like someone who's experiences the trauma of that type of behavior. Right. It's interesting then, like, how do we super, how do we bring this back to balance. And then I think of these men who have agreeableness. I would say that a lot of that behavior though is not surrounded with good boundaries. Oh, please you know tell I mean? me like, more. That's one of my favorite words, boundaries. Well, it's like agreeableness at the cost of self is, is codependent pleasing behavior, but agreeableness that comes from a rooted place that is about standing in the truth of what's right or your integrity is then is powerful. So I would imagine I would, because I think of like the book, No More Mr. Nice Guy by Robert Glover, uh -huh. where he says, a woman doesn't want to, or in it, he says, if you won't stand up to her, she won't believe you'll stand up for her. Wow. And I liked that line because it was, it was interesting in the context of like, okay, well, if these, we as men have developed this overtly emotional side that is about people pleasing, it's codependency ultimately. Sure. If we bring that into the workplace, we're going to be a freaking doormat. If we're a doormat everywhere, we're going to be a doormat at work. It's true. You might be interested to know that the sort of buckets in terms of how we characterize men and women, and this might be familiar to some listeners, you know, what we want in our male leaders is actually for them to be agentic, right? Focused on themselves. Our expectations for women are to be communal. And this again mm -hmm. goes back to social roles. One of my yeah. co-authors, Rachel, um, Sturm from Wright State University has been talking about how the workplace, though, seems to be moving in a more feminized direction. Um, but we're not setting up those men again who might, you know, be more like that for success. And women, of course, um, 
face a double bind, right? If you're too soft or you're too hard, somebody's going to punish you for it, either other women or other men. It's a double bind that Deborah Tannen, a Georgetown professor, has looked at extensively. Men and women, by the way, also use language differently. So Deborah Tannen's work suggests men use language in groups to establish dominance and status. And women use language, and this is going back to like the sandbox when we're children, to establish rapport and relationships with one another. That makes so much sense. It's so fascinating to me how these all correlate in the, you know, I know that it's, it it could be evolutionary. It could also be socializing the impact of, because I know in, once women go through puberty, they have more interconnections between the left and right hemisphere of their brain. So they are better with language, but that could be so much from socializing too. It is thought to be from estrogens interaction in the brain. But I, I mean, when I think about what we reward in leadership, it's interesting that we are in this double bind if you're a female leader. And I couldn't right. even imagine if, you're, if your gender is anything other than male or female, then I would imagine that is that research even looked at? Do people of those roles get in, or sorry, of those identities get into leadership roles? I would imagine it's more, it's, it's less likely. Is that, yeah. is that true? I actually don't know that area very well, but I will give you my hunch. So when it comes to gender backlash against women, that theme dominates the research. Like I would say 99.9% of what we know about gender backlash is about women leaders. And I'm a woman of color and I support that research. And I think it's important because women suffer more, right? Like there's so many worse negative outcomes in some ways for women who violate gender stereotypes and There's obviously a lot of practical kind of um, work that's being done to support those women. At last count, Rachel and I, I think, have found less than 10 studies that look at the experiences of gender backlash against men who are in work settings. And that might be a generous estimate. And over the weekend, I actually had a conversation with one of my former Wharton students, Brianna, and one of her first pieces of feedback was, what about the role of intersectionality? And I was like, you're right. Like, we don't talk about male leaders of color. And we definitely don't talk about sexual orientation for male Mm -hmm. leaders who are of color or not. And so in this paper we're writing, I think the way we're going to structure it is we're going to start by acknowledging almost like kind of like this wider lens about gender backlash for women, zoom in on the experiences of the men I'm describing, the empathetic, vulnerable, nice guys, and then kind of zoom out and talk about race and sexual orientation. So again, very little data, but lots of room, I think, for dialogue. And our paper is not about a victim story for male leaders, right? This isn't woe is me, I'm a nice guy and I get paid less. It's about making the leadership conversation more holistic And also recognizing that if men are getting punished, what are the implications for their followers or women that those men could be advocates for? This is, and you know, I'm a systems thinker, right? I look at Uh, the That's so true. Because that, just that character trait collection, because I would imagine you see clusters of the character traits, like empathy, agreeableness, you know, like that type of stuff. That's so interesting because if it's not celebrated in the leadership, if it doesn't get into leadership roles, then just power dynamics in terms of gender and and all of those things would be continue to be exacerbated. The you know what Me Too has 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 attempted, and I think successfully in some sense um, yes. brought down, but not eliminated, of course, because our systems are so old. Yes, and they're old, and and power is still celebrated and. I wanted to um, just get your thoughts on, because I was thinking about how you said that women tend to be like as little girls in the sandbox, more pleasing, more connective behaviors. 
Yeah, and and where that I'm guessing from because women are so much generally more um, uh, fluid with language, uh, more connected, more less uh, confronting, as you said. Male language tend to be more dominant, asserting dominance. Right. Um, I, I'm guessing is that evolutionarily from the fear of violence if they're not keeping the peace, uh, that kind of thing. My understanding is that the way that little girls and women behave is is rooted in the idea that if they violate what our stereotypes are, they will face rejection in a number of capacities. So maybe in some ways we could link it back to the idea of self-worth, that if I'm a little girl in the sandbox and I'm speaking with dominance, which I actually probably did, to be honest, um, <laughs> I'm going to violate what others around me expect of me and they're going to react towards me and exclude me. There might be ostracism. I might not be invited to the next birthday party. So I think in a lot of ways, it goes back to our connections and the sense of belongingness that we want. And we want to do what's expected of us. Think about implicit theories of leadership. When your leader violates what you expect of your leader, how do you behave? You don't embrace that person. You run the other way and you try to find people who are more normative in your mind. So as a society, I don't think we actually reward what we say we want, which is people to be their authentic selves. Well, especially if we're not our authentic selves, because then we'll reject someone else's authentic self. We might admire them from a distance. We're like, I want some of that, but I don't want to hang out with that because it reminds me I don't do that. If, if, if leaders who, if it's like, I, you know, I was mentioning to you before we started recording that, you know, when they looked at research on speed dating, people who wrote down what they wanted and then started speed dating threw out what they wanted as soon as they had a connection. And it sounds, you know, it's the same thing as like, we want men who are emotional, mm -hmm. but we want the emotions we're comfortable with. We don't want them to be needy or like any of that, like God forbid, and, you know, whenever anyone talks about the archetype of a male being like, they're like this, they're less, we're human. We have, I'm probably more emotional than most women, you know, like that, that this difference between men and women is really, um, it's so hard to remove the confounding factor of socialization. For sure. You might be interested to know that there's generally a narrower range of acceptable emotional expression by men in work settings. So emotions that we are, are comfortable with men expressing include anger and pride. Of course, the game changes when women right express those emotions. So in the same class I mentioned on leadership and emotions that I run for my students, I have them read an article on a coach um, very similar to the Bobby Knight kind of um, character that I grew up with, right? Throws chairs, has temper tantrums, is passionate, is angry, uses vulgar language on the basketball court. And we revere coaches like that. And they're men. Mm. And so men aren't allowed, right, to deviate from some of those norms. And if they're winning or they're producing profit, then of course that's going to become, you know, the story that we celebrate and that we encourage other men to do. And social learning theory from Albert Bandura says, Leaders are our role models. They set the tone mm -hmm. in an organization and the culture and the tone are set at the top. So if we're narrowing the range of emotional expression or emotional regulation by male leaders, what is that doing for the rest of the culture, especially as you go down the hierarchy? Yeah, especially if you aspire to be a leader, you know, exactly. you're going to turn down some things and turn up others, which that's, I guess, part of that double bind, because if a woman turns up anger or turns up pride, we're like, no, that's too much. Turn it down. And so in that 
that theory, of course, that the leader sort of emulates the culture or leads the culture or can. What I notice is that when, at least in the organizations that I had experience with, is when the leader and what the organization says is, so when the, the organization says, the customer is always right, for example. Yes. But then when you're actually dealing with the day-to-day transactions and we're not actually honoring that, or there's any difference between what the company says is important to them yes, and what's actually important to them based on their decisions. For me, that causes a toxic corporate culture because then now the employees are like, is what they're t- saying that matters to the company different around the water cooler than what the company says in their mission statement? As soon as there's a difference, shit gets fucked. Yes. I think that's a term that a phrase that we need to put in our academic papers. The shit gets fucked because it does. So culture research suggests that there can be espoused values and enacted values in an organization. And when you have a disconnect, when companies are not walking the talk, naturally employees are going to have higher levels of distrust. They're going to feel more cynical towards their leadership. So companies need to narrow that gap. My, my sort of approach with people in leadership and in life is you have to know who you are and you have to know what your values are. And there's actually research on stress that says when you identify and live with your values, your cortisol level drops. So oh, this is about now. well-being, right? This is about being healthy and this is about leading authentically in your organizations. And the best part, I think, is when you authentically lead and you know your values, you're going to either find organizations and cultures that are congruent for you and or you're going to attract people who are like-minded. And this is not to say, by the way, that you only want homogenous companies where everyone thinks the same because that's also not good. But there's a but message. You could have there. the same values and not and not agree on things. Yes, absolutely. Well, one of the values could be truth. And so you having a different truth than me is actually still in alignment with the values of the organization. But but we have with diversity, as you were saying, is I mean, that's ultimately what breeds healthy culture, too. Yep. And successful culture. Agreed. And so what we're doing with this gender backlash paper for male leaders is we're trying to put together a toolkit, again, for what the leaders right away can do. And we're coming up with a do's and don'ts list. And one of the do's is to know yourself, uh, know the environment you're in, and don't try to change the culture, actually, because it might be better if you move to a different company where the culture... Mm is more aligned with who you are. And there's a broader research on person organization fit, PO fit, that we're going to draw from. But again, this is a topic that lit my intellectual fire when I started teaching it to my students because I think it's a tension in real life and it speaks to identity and and other topics like values that I think every leader should pause and think about, especially when you have time like you do during a pandemic, maybe to get to know yourself. Yeah, what an opportunity to do that. Not a great opportunity, but a great opportunity. You know, in the when you you mentioned before we started recording that that phrase that you're as sick as your secrets. Did you say that? Secrets make you sick. Yeah, secrets make you sick. And I think about like when you get to know your values, but you're not living in them, you end up living in secrecy in some sense because you're there's a lack of alignment between who you say you are and who you actually are. And so there's secrecy that's occurring, which creates passive shame, which creates toxicity within yourself, which without a doubt in my mind would easily be correlated to um, high cortisol states, uh, high inflammatory states. Because if high conflict relationships at home cause increased inflammation and leaky gut, 
high conflict relationships at work for sure do the same. But I always think about that inner battle. That inner battle with self is one that we don't often think about. And it seems like a radical thought that a, a organization should teach personal growth and self-inquiry, you know, beyond just for the benefit of the organization. Because I think when the intention is purely profit, and that's why we're doing this thing, because that's usually why those those programs almost always only get implemented when they show that they improve the bottom line. Yeah. Like that pisses me off. Yeah. Because to me, I'm like, why does it always have to show a profit? And, you know, that's why the same behavior, as you said, this male leader is being a douchebag, but he's making money. So the stockholders aren't going to get rid of him. The board is like, awesome. He's crushing it. He's a dick, but he's crushing it. Like that type of behavior is so out of congruence and out of integrity. But what you're speaking to is just like the whole systems that are still in place of the patriarchy and all capitalism and celebration of the dominant human, because it can be uh, anyone at the top, but it just happens to mostly be men. Yeah. There are some concepts you might be interested in and perhaps you're familiar with. So one concept from the emotions research is on emotional labor. It's basically where you have to show up and publicly exude certain emotions that might have divergence from how you actually feel. That to me sounds exhausting in a related sense. Right. And then imagine what if you have to also suppress your emotions as part of that labor? I mean, the research again, isn't suggesting that we are healthier or more fulfilled and we have to undergo these processes. And I feel like when you suppress your emotions or you have to engage in that labor, it becomes a pathway to more quickly start to lose who you actually might be because you're not expected to show up authentically in the work setting. And then when you think about this for male leaders, I think there's just a lot of tensions around, you know, how they can reconcile who they are versus what their organizations are expecting them to be. Yeah, there's a um, a book by, I had her on the podcast, uh, Hillary Jacobs Hendel called It's Not Always Depression. And in it, she talks about how when you suppress one of your core emotions, it comes out as anxiety, depression, and and guilt. Uh, so it's interesting how uh, what become our states are actually from suppression. And she did it all. Th- it's a really cool um, system that she walks people through. So I yeah. think, of course, the cost, you know, you, for me, like working for any organization that is uh, where you have to bend and not be yourself is then if you're willing to do it at work, it means you're willing to do it everywhere. Because, you know, you can't just have these pockets of your life where you're in alignment. You know, it's like, it, I, I at least believe that if you're cleaning up yourself, your life, who you are, getting an integrity, doing all those things, any choice that is now outside one of your principles or values comes at a massive cost. Because it's no longer a mistake anymore. It becomes a choice. And any choice you make that is toxic to yourself and that is self-harming is going to cause you illness. I agree. You know, I study workplace mistreatment behaviors like we chatted about, abusive supervision, bullying, incivility, social undermining, and sexual harassment. And I asked my students in class, how much money would it take for you to work for an abusive leader? And we talk about what abuse looks like. It's, you know, leaders who derogate you, who take credit for your work, who give you the silent treatment. And 
I have students who will say for $150,000 every day, I would show up and work for an abusive supervisor. So then I tell the students, the data suggests that if you go to a job and you're abused, let's say between nine to five every day, you're going to come home and you're proverbially going to kick your dog. And I have two dogs, so I don't like that proverb, but it's a, it's a metaphor, right? You're going to take it out mm-hmm. in your family, your friends, your children. You're not going to leave those behaviors in the work setting because those behaviors violate your sense of value, your sense of self-worth, your ability to control or have trust in your environment. You can't predict what's going to happen, except maybe you predict that you're going to be abused. Not surprisingly, people who are abused feel powerless. They are more likely to drink heavily when they come home. And of course, they're going to experience higher levels of depression and anxiety. And imagine doing this every day. I I don't think there's a, a number that you could pay me to endure that because that's suppressing your basic fundamental needs as a human being. And there is no, I think, amount of money that's ever worth that. Not in hindsight, for sure. You know, it's true. That's, but in the present moment, it's sort of like, what are you willing to exchange? Which is really a form of prostitution. You know, it's like, what are you willing to trade for that fleeting moment, for that thing, for that, for security, which don't get me wrong, we're all experiencing life in different ways and different challenges. And, and so I'm not making light of that, but right. You know, like I know that I, I would never work for that. I would take half of that. No problem to be at a healthy corporation because my everyday life, you know, would be much better. My relationships would be less strained. And I think about that, you know, this concept that's thrown around corporate worlds about work-life balance. And then, you know, I, you know, in companies that are like, oh, we have this new initiative and now you get this allowance for this or you get, you know, whatever. And work-life balance is total bullshit to me because it, it, it sends the message that there's some sort of trade-off that like one will trade off on the other. But we know that if you lost your job and you were home all the time, you'd have great life balance, but I'm pretty sure your partner would not want you around anymore. They'd be like, <laughs> yo, get a job, figure something out. You're killing me over here. Yes. You see that happen when people retire, right? Cause they don't have a purpose. They're not, they're at home all the time. Yes. And then the relationships under strain, which I'm sure is true for a lot of people right now, just being home together a lot. But I, I really think about this idea of like, your life can't be pocketed. There's not like, you don't get to leave work and come home and work stays at work. That's such bullshit. We think that's true. You don't leave home at home and you don't leave work at work because life is everything. And so it's really about work-life synergy. Like, are you getting energy from your work or is it taking it from you? Are you getting energy from home or is it taking from you? And likely the behavior that is inhibiting you at work is probably a behavior that you also have at home. Agreed. Because one question I would ask is if you're working for an abusive supervisor, are those power dynamics representative of other parts of your life? And why are you okay with a story where you might lack having control or influence or dependence? And maybe that's the bigger conversation. I study powerlessness and I think it's probably the most important topic for people in some ways to think about because when you understand where you can or cannot have control is where you start to make choices that can better serve you or that are going to hinder you. So in the context of power dynamics and, and this powerlessness, just for people listening, because I, I get a lot of questions about it, what would be sort of the character traits or the experience of someone who's being abused at work, but might just be like, oh, my boss is a hard ass? Yeah, there's a classic theory that management scholars have used for some time. And I 
I will share with you my my intellectual discomfort with it because there's a few sides to this. The theory is called victim precipitation theory, and it dates back from sociology research, and it's also from where the rape myth emerged. So as the name suggests, it's the idea that if you act a certain way, uh, you're going to precipitate aggression from others. And so with the rape myth idea, you know, a woman walks down a dark alley, right, or she's wearing certain clothes. And that's obviously a much larger conversation in the context of Me Too and Time's Up. In the organizational space, there has been research that has looked at how you behave towards your coworkers can elicit aggression. So one of my favorite studies is called Get Smarty Pants. And it looks at if you have high cognitive ability, to what extent are you likely to be victimized by others? And what the research shows is that if you have high cognitive ability coupled with with being communal, so focused on your coworkers, you're less likely to be attacked. But if you have high cognitive ability and you're more agentic, you're more self-focused, people are going to come after you. And whenever I talk about this again in my classes, one of the questions I ask my students is, is it your responsibility to manage the sense of threat that others feel around you because you're the smarty pants? And of course, the underlying mechanisms are threat and envy, because according to social comparison theory, we're more likely to compare up, which I think, by the way, is funny, because if you ever compare down, you would feel a whole hell of a lot You're crushing it. Yeah. yeah. We like to feed the story that we're not enough, you know, so we're so evidence-based ourselves. We're like, uh, where's more evidence so I can hold on to this belief? Even though the evidence is out there to challenge and flip the belief on its side. So... One example would be cognitive ability can get you victimized. Uh, Victim precipitation theory would say if you're submissive or timid, this actually goes back to like research in the playground. You're more likely to elicit, again, aggressive behaviors from others. Interestingly enough, you can also be too dominant and people will attack you in kind. So that's kind of a snapshot of who might be feeling, you know, the mistreatment behaviors in the work setting. I'll also answer that by giving you a taste of what research I've been doing on the hip hop and rap music industry has suggested. So I study the experiences of video models, women who model in the rap and hip hop music videos. And our data is suggesting that if you feel powerless as a video model, there's four dimensions. And before I go through go through these dimensions, I also want to be clear powerlessness is not how we, I think, should characterize people. It's how we should characterize situations. Mm. And if you can separate that in your mind, i.e. you cannot internalize the structural powerlessness in your life, that is where you're going to experience agency and feel empowered. So regardless of, so essentially, just so I'm clarifying this, that you have power always, but the situation itself might elicit the feeling of powerlessness. Exactly. That, that, that the environment creates powerlessness, but you yourself, if you were outside of that environment, likely because you're wounded, you take that sense of self with you so you feel powerless everywhere. But really it was just the environment that created that. You remove the environment, you're still you. It does. You can be powerful. Is that fair? That's fair. And the the illustration I would give is think about if you're a child who grew up in an abusive home, you were in a situation that probably was knee deep in powerlessness dynamics, but then you become an adult and you're not in that situation anymore. And so power, just to give you a sense, is about control, influence, and dependence. Other management scholars conceptualize it as having the ability and the means to exert your will. And means can include access to resources. So again, think about the child and the adult. As a child, you did not have choice. You did not have control. But as an adult, you probably have access to resources in some form. 
And that can vary by socioeconomic status and your personality and so forth. But the conversation is richer when you're an adult, because my fundamental belief is that we all have access to power. I just wrote a paper about this called Becoming Powerful at Work. And the premise is that you can't choose your situation, but you can choose your response. That's kind of the fundamental message to that. Mm, I love that. So what are the four dimensions mm-hmm. then? Yeah. And this is making me so intellectually excited. And also I want to recognize Christy Rogers, my co-author on the Hip Hop Project. So the first dimension is isolation. And I think actually our dimensions apply to COVID if you think about the reality of how people are living their lives. For the video models, they don't have a built-in support system because their work is inherently competitive. They're not going to talk to other video models about their experiences on set on average, because why would I talk to you if you and I are both competing for our currency, which is time in front of the camera? The second dimension is instability of work. And again, quite a pressing topic when you think about how much volatility our current state of the world seems to be in. So unlike me, for example, I show up to the same building with the same coworkers day in, day out. Video models might not know where shoot is located. They might not know who the artist is. They may not know who the other video models are. All of that, we think, is promoting vulnerability, right? You don't have a basic sense of control over your work environment. Now, what's interesting is that Christy and I are looking at what are some power moves that the video models can use to address isolation and instability. And ultimately, we're finding the video models are trying to mitigate risk. So one way they do this is they build allies. And I will tell everyone, life is not meant to be lived as an island. If you are feeling powerless, and that includes feeling isolated, you have to curate a village. You cannot go through trauma or anything hard in life exclusively on your own without a great deal of hard work. And I am a hard worker, but I need people to make it easier. The last two dimensions of powerlessness following isolation and instability is resource scarcity. Toilet paper, right, is an example from current days and times. For video models, not all of them understand that there's actually ample work. Some of them seem to have this narrative that the industry imposes on them that there's not enough work. So imagine you're a video model and you show up for a shoot and you're asked to engage in a sexual transaction with a powerful actor. It could be a rapper. It could be a director. It could be anybody. Knowing that you perceive there's resource scarcity, are you going to be more or less inclined to acquiesce to that sexual transaction? The hard reality is you are. And what do you think happens once you engage in a sexual transaction? You lose power. The last dimension is imposed role constraints. So this is my favorite. It's basically the idea that the industry tells video models who they should be, which is a woman that's a hoe or someone who will you know, sleep around in order to try to get jobs or will dress scantily on a video set or has no level of competence or talent or skill. And so some of the power moves Christy and I are exploring is that when you experience resource scarcity or other people are telling you who the fuck you should be, maybe you can take back your power by actually understanding how you can curate opportunities. So one of my favorite stories is a video model said to me, I book myself. I don't rely on other people to get work. I don't rely on agents. I don't rely on brokers. I book myself. This video model in turn has started to book other video models. That's how you build power. Mm, Yeah. Well, that's interesting because all of those dynamics are obviously very relatable to probably how people feel currently, you know, in, in 
I'm fascinated. Like, is there going to be an intervention and then looking at their power? Cause I'm like, I think about the workplace space with the, you know, anyone who elicits like more empathic behavior doesn't get as many, you know, promotions, et cetera. In the research on boundaries at work, people who have good boundaries get promoted more because you can trust them to say no to things they don't want to do, can't do, et cetera. And I just think about that of like, fuck, man, you teach all these people boundaries, they would rock it because people respect people with boundaries. It's true. And in our video model data, and this goes back actually to victim precipitation theory and how my head is twisted actually about how to advise people in terms of what to do. Video models who set boundaries send signals and boundaries are less likely to be violated when they're clear and upfront. One of my other favorite stories is that video models are often recruited through Instagram. So I'm going to hypothetically use you as my video model again. (laughs) I'm a director. I slide into your DM at midnight tonight and I say, Mark, I have a shoot tomorrow at 6 a.m. Are you in? You don't have information on the pay. You don't have information on the artist. I could be anybody. And maybe you know me. Maybe you look me up, not like know me, know me, but maybe you look me up on Instagram. Mm -hmm. You have six hours to decide, but I've slid into your Instagram right now and I need an answer. Talk about taking away scarcity. Yeah, it's a, I live in scarcity. I'm working job to job. I'm trying to get ahead. I'm trying to get more gigs so I have a better resume. I mean, there's the whole nature of that industry in and of itself sounds pretty powerless. Exactly. And again, structural, situational, and contextual. But the video models who can separate what the industry is trying to tell them versus who they are, are more likely to ask questions. So it would be appropriate, we've seen in our data, for you to say, what's the pay? And let's say I tell you, by the way, can you guess what video models are paid? This is one of my favorite questions to ask people. For the whole day? 16-hour shoot for two days. How much do you think you would be paid? I'm going to guess like I'm going to make it not as great. I'm going to guess like 250 bucks. You're right. Which is and sometimes awful. they do it for free, including for big name artists. If you're lucky. It's such exploitation yeah. of a person's time. Yeah. That's a. And you can imagine, I mean, sometimes these video models are waiting around for rappers to show up. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a story, like what they go through. And those are long days. And there, there are times that they're at a shoot can sometimes be late, you know, night, early morning. I had a video model. This was actually one of the hardest interviews for me emotionally to do. I asked her, I said, are you friends with other video models? And she said, I had a friend who died. And I was like, excuse me. And she said, I have a friend who was a video model who was coming home from a shoot at 3 a.m. Her baby was with her and she was hit by a drunk driver. That was hard. That was also following an interview where I learned about how video model work sometimes becomes a gateway for sex trafficking, especially if shoots are done abroad. But again, Mark, it's midnight. I need a response for my 6 a.m. shoot. Do you know if it's in Barbados? Do you know if it's in New York City? Does it even matter to you? Like, how do you negotiate that when the industry is setting the tone that you have no space and no time to negotiate? But yet other people in the industry have made it very clear there's always room to negotiate. Maybe you don't ask for five grand, right, on that DMing that we're doing, but maybe you ask for $500 or $1,000 and you show up and you're professional and you create value but then the message I try to think about is if video models are not sending ba- setting boundaries, does victim precipitation theory, precipitation theory then suggest that they're eliciting the mistreatment? Like, where is the empowerment story here? Well, I think about that being rather than eliciting it just being that the pattern matches. You know, it's like it's like you could take someone who's uh, gets picked on at school 
and you move them to another school, they still get picked on because they haven't, their energetics haven't changed, their pattern of language and behavior hasn't changed. So it's still from low self-worth, it's still validation seeking behavior, which doesn't mean that I'm not saying that then it elicits it, it just participates in the pattern recognition of the dominant behavior. So a narcissistic person who is manipulative and gaslights can't do that with someone who has high self-worth. Someone with high self-worth can meet someone who does that and it will chip away at them as their self-worth gets chipped away. But people who love themselves don't tolerate behavior from other people that says that that they're not worthy. You know, and and so I think wow. about that in terms of the pattern of this, which is it's hard because of course in that is probably a childhood pattern that is so old. And to go from inherent low self-worth and powerlessness to a place of power is some of the hardest, deepest, most courageous, I would say, trauma work because you are standing up for the first time, probably when you didn't to your alcoholic mom or your drug addict person or you know someone like that. So it's a behavior that you've never seen emulated. So it's like uncertainty. You're pioneering a journey for yourself, which I think if there's anything we're learning from COVID is that we're all facing absolute uncertainty and it's not a choice. I like but to we say can increase that, our yeah. tolerance for it. Yes. I have a, um, this is sort of a joke and it's in poor taste. So forgive me in advance. I've told friends that I sat down to journal recently and I thought to myself, this was like the message I was getting for those that are woo woo out there. Cause I sort of am the message I got is that the universe sat down with its strategic advisors. I'm a business school professor. So I think the universe has strategic advisors and in their meeting, the universe said, what can we do to induce the highest level of collective learning? And the strategic advisor said, let's create a pandemic because look at what's happening Seriously? on the world stage. I mean, I'm very fascinated by this because, of course, like you and I spoke a bit before uh, I hit record, the for me, I, I'm like always in terms of any thought process and any belief and any narrative, I always hold the possibility that the opposite is true. I always hold the possibility that there's many truths. And that's of myself, too, that my identity, I love Russell Brand once said, and I just loved it. He said, I always hold my identity as fluid. That way, if I learn something, I'm open to changing who I am. Wow. Yeah, which is so different than how we operate from an unconscious space, which is if we find out that, let's say, for example, religion is just such an easy example to use for this. But let's say that we're extremely Christian and we find out that something inherent in that belief is actually because, you know, a lot of shame is created from extreme forms of all beliefs. You find out that it's actually damaging and toxic. Are you going to cling tighter to that belief or are you going to let it go? Well, if your community dictates that you must believe the same thing as them, you'll probably cling tighter. You know, and and um, I think of that in the context of everything we believe, that it's so important that we take in other information, that we have the possibility of... of um, and I, what I love about what's going on right now is people are not just believing what they're told. Agreed. I have a question for you around this. You might actually be interested to know that early on in our hip hop project, we were told that if video models have quote unquote daddy issues, this industry will eat them alive. I mean, it's just the gonna, video what? If the video models have daddy issues, like if you grew up with issues with your dad, 
the industry will eat you alive. Like there's no mercy because of the power dynamics and expectations of the video models. Mm -hmm. And we do see that some of the video models that seem more kind of equipped at handling power dynamics are those that grew up in families where they literally sat around the dinner table and talked about power, which I don't think is most families. It wasn't mine. I don't actually know anyone that grew up in a family where you sat around and talk about power over your night. No, such a rare subject, especially since most um, families historically, if they're more of like the breadwinner structure, which is what they were, it'd be interesting for the male, the leader of the household, quote unquote, to discuss power, because I think inherent in that is the fear that they lose them. Um, so it's interesting how it sort of all ties back of like, are we open to having these conversations? Because what I love that, that men are having that conversation now of like, what is my privilege? What does it get me with my color? And, you know, like I'm born in the most privileged of positions and I'm born in Canada, you know, so I have a lower level of adversity. I have baseline healthcare, which means that I'm not worried about, like if something happened, I at least am covered, which is not true of all countries, certainly not. So I recognize there's such privilege and it's like, okay, what am I going to do with this? Mm-hmm. You know, to just not, not embrace it. And then um, not embrace, maybe that's the wrong word, but like, use it in order to empower other people so that we all end up on the same structure. Yes. Agreed. And you're in a situation structurally where powerlessness is not embedded in the way that Canada runs its way of life. And that gives you a platform because you don't have to worry about some of those basic needs. My question to you is, very tactically speaking, like if you think about the male leaders we're discussing or the video models, What's your favorite day-to-day practice to preserve or curate or enhance or build your self-worth? To ask yourself the question in each decision that you make, if I loved myself, what would I do? If I chose myself, what would I do? And the hard thing about uh, cultivating self-worth, in my opinion, is that usually any belief, any choice that you make that actually says you don't care about yourself is instantly in that moment, you you lower your worth. So we have to be diligent, which doesn't mean never eating fries or something like that. But if you're always eating foods that are poor for you, you're not going to believe you love yourself. If you don't take care of your body and exercise, but if you do it too much, you start to lower your self-worth because you know that you're chasing something and it becomes an addiction. So it's interesting how it is. For me, it's just the simple answer to that question. Because that is going to demand boundaries. That's going to demand letting go of relationships. That's going to demand inviting relationships to change. And it's going to demand sitting in scarcity and the space of expansion, which you have to be ready to lose things to gain yourself. I mean, that's the that's sort of a rule of life, in my opinion. But then what you realize is you only lose things that you played your you place your worth in. Oh, I love that. And does that mean that you some people may not may not love themselves, but they can still use that question. They That's how they get it, is you do the things that say, yes, if I did this, I would. And then if you just follow that, you end up in love with yourself. It's, it's impossible not to love yourself if you love your choices. If you love your choices, you'll love yourself. If you don't like your choices, you won't love yourself. It's, it's literally that simple, but it so, requires yeah. a whole 
pattern change, a whole paradigm shift, a whole narrative change. You know, it's like saying to a woman, like, use your voice, stand in your power. But that meant death historically. Yes. So I'm not just asking someone to stand in their power. That could mean death now for a lot of women. So it's like, I know that in the request of following that, it is also contextual. And like, is there a real threat? If I'm standing in my power, if I love myself, I wouldn't say this right now because it leads to some sort of threat. So for me, it's more like, okay, I get that there's so many things systemically that have to be healed through that. Um, you know, does that make sense? I definitely want to invite you on this gender backlash against male leaders paper, because I think there's so much opportunity to help men, but to help people in general. And like we talked about, if those male leaders are not receiving support, it's going to set a tone in the organization. It's going to signal to their followers what behaviors are rewarded. And it's going to, I think, damage the work experiences of people those male leaders could be advocates for, which would be other women. Well, and I'm curious, like for someone who identifies as being powerless right now, and in this state, of course, speaking to COVID, um, too, there likely people are you know experiencing almost all four of those, no matter who you are, because it's not really uh, a choice. The the environment is structured in that way right now. How do you hold on to your power in that? And for me, because power is about control, it's about day to day. Sometimes it's hour to hour, and sometimes it's minute by minute choices. And when you break down those choices, it's less overwhelming. I actually just wrote this like thought piece for leaders in the healthcare sector about how they can support their employees. And then I also wrote about what employees can do. And I said, you always have to focus on what you can control. And sometimes daily, you have to revisit that and be realistic about it. And maybe that's soothing yourself. That's how you have control in the face of everything being so volatile and uncertain and complex and ambiguous. We can't change COVID today, here and now, but you know, in the next five minutes, you can think about what narrative you're telling yourself in your mind and what what is your power story. Mm, I love that. That's like, you can't change your specific environment from a social structure that's currently occurring, but you can change your internal environment. And then you can decide that the external environment doesn't dictate your internal environment. Ooh, I love that because that's individuation. That's adulting. That's saying the world, what's going on in the world, it doesn't have to be going on within me. And that's what our video models do. They're the ones that gain power in an industry that tells them they have none. Okay, I can't wait to have you back on because we've already talked for two hours today. Um, sorry for everyone listening. You missed the first hour. Uh, that we had pre-record. Um, but it was incredible. And I can't wait to have you back on. I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much. I'm sure so many people have so many questions for you too. Uh, where can people find you? Yep. Um, I have my own website. You're going to laugh at the the URL. It's power.faculty.unlv.edu. There's a lot of information about what I study. There's talks I've given on power and there's resources along with my email address. So I'd love for folks to stay in touch Power is my favorite topic to talk about. What's your email address? Just it's, so people have it. For sure. It's payal.sharma. So P-A-Y-A-L dot S-H-A-R-M-A at U-N-L-V dot E-D-U. Amazing. Well, I'm so grateful that you were on today. Thank you so much. And we'll put all those links in the show notes. So thank you. Thank you, Mark. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> 